Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors podcast series. I'm Amanda White, editor of top1000funds.com and director of institutional content at Connexus Financial. My guest today is Andrew Parry, who's head of sustainability at Newton Investment Management. Welcome, Andrew. Great to speak with you again. How are things in the UK for you? No, it's great, despite we're, the fact that we're in the start of aut- autumn. Um, you know, it's lovely to see everybody talking about sustainable investment. And as we joked earlier, I've become fashionable for the first time in my long career. <laughs> so we're going to spend a bit of time today discussing sustainability and how the COVID pandemic has highlighted certain needs and certain frailties in the economy, progress that's been made, what still needs to be done, and importantly, the role of investors in all of that. So last month, September 2020, marked the fifth anniversary of the Sustainable Development Goals, and the SDGs have a bold ambition to transform our world while leaving no one behind. They're a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that all people enjoy peace and prosperity by 2030. So, Andrew, do you think all of that can be achieved in the next decade? Well, there's nothing like setting yourself a a great ambition. And I think it's always important to remember that the the most operative word in the SDGs is goals. Goals are something that you seek to achieve in the future. uh, And and that's why they they, they are an ambition for future sustainable development. That was how they they were framed. I think in five years in, we are probably at a point where we, pro- we we have the most uh, chance of actually um, succeeding, but we really have to take action now. Why do I think it's now is is a, a really important po- point? Well, of course, the COVID pandemic has exposed a lot of frailties in our economic system and in a, in society as well. The COVID you know, crisis is very much a social, a very human crisis, and. What it's done, though, is help galvanise attention on these issues. It's brought together a a broad range of partners across public sector and private sector and has begun to be seen as a way of actually recovering from the crisis that we're in, if executed well. Now, I think the first five years, it was slow for people to embrace the SDGs, in many ways, they embrace the SDGs as a labelling exercise. Um, I think a, a lot of, there was a lot of adoption by asset managers, corporates, as a claim to be doing the SDGs, after initially ignoring them, to be honest. But they never really got under the skin of it and, and into the substance. And I think what you found was a lot of people were calling out that and saying, you know, you're not measuring this. You're not integrating this into business plans. You're not seeing this as part of the transformation that we need in the economy. And, and I think this is what happened with the COVID crisis. It brought all of that home. It surfaced it. And I think all the work that the UN agencies are doing uh, and then in the partnership with the corporate sector, the asset management is about, so how do we mobilize capital? How do we see this as a lens to tackle a world in transition? How do we do restorative, transformative allocations of capital? And I think that's really exciting. And then one other thing that is, uh, I think, really quite important, but a totally unintended consequence, is that 
the pandemic has provided us with an extraordinary low level of interest rates around the world. We've actually seen the dogma of uh, public sector financing of many of the solutions being, uh, are not doing, have been swept away. So this is a moment because of the cost of funding, uh, the social interest and social need, uh, and that greater sense of that we are all in this together and the need for collaboration, that we have a unique moment in time where we can actually really begin to accelerate the move to meeting those ambitious goals. So, I mean, just sort of um, following on from that, you know, there is potentially a significant role for the finance sector and, you know, new types of financing can contribute to that, like green bonds and social investment bonds and, and investors can also be very, more engaged owners. If you had to sort of pinpoint the role of the financial sector and how they can rise to the occasion on this, what, what would it look like from your point of view? Where should the finance sector be focusing well, I think the finance sector has gone beyond sort of re just a simple remapping of the goals to you know, uh, existing gig sectors or, you know, sector classifications. It's beginning to understand that the, the SDGs represent a series of enormous opportunity, you know, literally the trillions that are needed to meet the SDGs. And that represents a significant opportunity for growth, um, because because these new because these are unmet or underserved needs. This is area of incremental additional capital, additional opportunity. So solving these underserved needs represents a significant opportunity for the future growth and an ability to provide financing now at these new low levels of interest rates actually can accelerate that transformation. So I think they can think of it in terms of opportunity. But also, you can also think of not meeting the goals. What are the impact risks associated with not delivering on those goals? So, so some of them do act as a very good risk framework. And that's where it's good to see that when people are now beginning to look at the goals for what they, they mean, they're not just getting stuck at the 17. They're drilling down to the 169 um, targets beneath. They're looking at the uh, 230 plus unique performance indicators. They're beginning to understand that there, there is data, there is measurement that can be done on some of them. But you need to start at the granular level and work your way up rather than just mapping existing activities at the economic level to an SDG. I think the other area that finance can play a role is innovation. You know, I always used to say that impact investing has probably been one of the most innovative areas of finance uh, over the last decade, because it's about finding new ways to uh, to tackle and deliver on uh, 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 on the most pressing needs. And that's where finance can be really very good. Now, I think historically the barrier to entry was always level of market-based rates of return. So you've mentioned green bonds, but we've already got COVID bonds, we have social bonds. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, for the fixed income market, this is the moment where it can really accelerate its, uh, its participation in the goals. Because unlike uh, tra trading in public equities, where we're, we're buying and selling existing assets, so we're really thinking of it through the lens of 
you know, future growth opportunities at maybe a more thematic level, you know, de-anchoring from the index and actually looking forward. And that's what's great about the goals from a growth perspective. They are future opportunities uh, that, we, that we can use as a framework for anticipating growth. But in the fixed income market, they have one of the great advantages uh, that is supposed to be a measurement of impact, and that's additionality. They can bring additional capital to bear to, you know, to, to help tackle and fund the, these needs, whether it be in social or environmental needs. Uh, and because of the COVID crisis, th those are now brought very much to the forefront of our attention. So I think this is one of the really interesting areas, is how do we take the learning from green bonds, both good and bad, because it's not all good, but how do we begin to apply that to, to the SDGs and bring new capital to bear. You know, the world is crying out, uh, the investment world is crying out for uh, attractive investment opportunities. And if it's done correctly in public-private partnership uh, with the right sort of underpinnings, yeah, I think this represents a fantastic opportunity for the for the fixed income market to find innovative ways to be uh, impactful investors. I like that point that you made, and and Paul Polman's made that as well. Is that is the cost of not doing something is now greater than the cost of of doing something, and so you know that tipping point has happened. But just sort of following on from what you were talking about, just just then, I mean, how does how does that fit into an asset owner's world and the challenges that they might have to allocating to some of those more innovative types of um, opportunities, you know, are, they, are there obstacles for them in doing that or or what are some of the other sort of challenges in investing in uh, and to meet the SDGs that asset owners might have that you've, that you've seen? Well, I think one of the biggest uh, obstacles is really understanding what they represent. So I always say to people, if you don't get beyond the top 17 uh, you know, goals, then you're not doing your job. You know, you really have to have a deep understanding. And, you know, there's a lot of great work coming out from a whole variety of the UN agencies, uh, from the academic arms to the corporate arms to, you know, the development programs. There's a rich, rich, rich body of understanding about what the goals represent, what the targets represent, and how, how they can be accessed. So I think that does help you build your own view and taxonomy. And when I talk to asset owners about sustainable investment, not necessarily just targeted at the SDGs, I always think about it around four pillars, around the, the first pillar around identifying uh, your secular growth opportunities. Uh, both in public and private markets, you know, as I said earlier, a lens to decouple yourself from the past, from the index, and actually as a more efficient way, I think, about thinking about allocating capital for future growth, because that's what we should be doing. You know, we want to buy tomorrow's growth stories today, in effect. So I think it can be a great way of identifying um, uh, growth opportunities. That can be particularly true in the in the private markets, where for many asset owners, private markets have been an area of particular interest in the last five, ten years. Um, I think there it can actually you know, give you a, an ability to get 
more focused, to be more thematic in your private market investments and to move away from, you know, some of the more traditional PE styles uh, and have an impact at the same time. And, you know, many of these areas do represent significant market-based rates of return opportunities. Uh, and also, you know, how depending on how it's structured, you know, with that low barrier from the administered rate, from, you know, the, the risk-free rate virtually has no rate, that's changing the dynamic in thinking about um, the, the, you know, the, the required return needed. So I think there's rich opportunity set in thinking of it through growth. Obviously, a risk pillar, we come back to that point that not achieving the SDGs and not being sustainable as a society or certainly as a planet um, is an opportunity and it's about not just systemic risk. And then the other two pillars would be around stewardship, so active voting engagement, uh, policy advocation, education related to sustainable transformative development, the SDGs, and then finally reporting, clear, transparent, open reporting that actually references negatives as well as positives. Uh, and I think you know, one of the great uh, advantage, advances has been that we're not just looking at the gross positives, much more now the reporting is admitting that we're all in deficit in reality. You know, we, we have not yet achieved a sustainable state of being. And that's a really important concept around sustainability. It's a, it's, a, it's a state that we wish to achieve in the future, not something that we dwell in at the moment. Uh, and that forward-looking part is a very important part around setting aspirations in your statement of investment principles, for example, about where you want to be. If you, if you like, your purpose, something that we did in our corporate purpose statement, it's not about what we just do today, it's our aspiration for how we can become better in the future. So let's turn our attention to climate change, which is probably the most advanced area when it comes to sustainability integration among investors. And we've got more movement on climate change than potentially any other sustainability issue or potentially any other sort of systemic issue. Um, and there's some great guidance recently, including the IIGCC's Net Zero Investment Framework. Lots of investors are signing up to be net zero. Um, the UK seems to be leading the way on that. I'm interested in your insights into the obstacles for investors in that quest for a net zero portfolio. For example, how do you have impact on your emerging markets exposures, noting that China is the largest emitter responsible for nearly one third of the global CO2 emissions? Yeah, I think it comes back, you know, the, 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 the most important thing about the net zero ambitions and targets, and it's actually, I think, really profoundly important that China has uh, now signed up to be net zero by 2060. I think that could be one of the most important moments in the net zero movement is, again, it's about you know, framing this in a transition that is increasingly inevitable, inexorable, and, and almost irreversible if we, if we get the political will behind it. You know, the, 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 the challenges, though, I think, with achieving net zero in an investment portfolio is the, is the um, dependency and conditionality on external events. Um, you know, and we've been a bit resistant to just to sign up to it for its own sake. You know, as an active manager picking a limited number of stocks, it's very different to if you're a universal owner who has a, effectively owns the market, which is a call on the economy, 
as a an active manager that might pick, say, 40 stocks in a limited portfolio size global equity portfolio, we're really sort of being paid to be different to the market, to step away from the market and to, to think about those companies that are going to manage the transition well, are going to be relevant in the future and avoiding the many that will be left behind. So I think it's a, a recognition that that transition is then going to be dependent in part on government policy. Uh, you know, 80% of the uh, fossil fuel reserves in the world are controlled by state actors. The other 20% is heavily influenced by regulation, legislation, uh, and, and generally government policy. So we shouldn't ever forget that there is an elephant in the room and it's going to be the um, you know, the demand for uh, you know, the attitude to, towards fossil fuels by by governments. So I think you, you can have have uh, an aspiration to be to be net zero. You know, I think we are net zero uh, as as a business, for example, we have been for a number of years. Um, but within our portfolios, we then have the changing dynamics within the market, um, and there we have to represent not just the climate opportunity but also the business opportunity and 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 so here engagement is going to be an, an important part policy-led engagement so that we're trying to in, in, encourage a systemic shift so that we avoid that overarching tragedy of the commons as mark carney would put it and then how we encourage those companies to to embrace that transition, because for many of them, it's about remaining relevant in the changing world. You know, I'm doing a talk in Russia next week about sustainability to the corporate sector. And fascinating to see that an audience that's going to probably be dominated by fossil fuel and mining companies is beginning to think very actively about these challenges and why. Because it's about business models being relevant in a changing world. Um, and, and that's the dynamic as investors that we will still have to play. You know, valuations, business models, competitor analysis, regulation are all dynamics that we have to to. Uh, assimilate into the into the investment decisions. I think with engagement, it's 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 a very different process of engaging potentially for an asset owner who is a universal owner of the market, as opposed to um, a portfolio, uh, an active manager. Why? Because you know we look at climate risk management through the way that we select the stocks that we we want to um, we we want to own. To, you know, to grow and to produce superior risk-adjusted returns. Now, engagement can be an embedded part of that and always is in our assessments. And should, I think that's how it should be done. It should be part of the, the integration of ESG. But you have to look also at the possibility of that engagement not uh, be, being realistic. You know, many of the companies in the teeth of the transition will not be able to redeploy capital fast enough or at the right rate to achieve the targets. And I think that's one of the big challenges with the oil and gas companies. They're trying to balance at the moment the need to transition to, to meet their zero uh, uh, carbon targets. But they're also trying to do that to maintain cash flow and uh, to you know, remain viable. And if they go too fast uh, and too far, 
there's a danger that they, their business models might become, you know, unviable. If civil society demands they go further and faster as well, their business models might become unviable. So I think that's an element that is very different to for an active manager where we might in the end say we're real believers in the transition, but we don't believe that all of these companies will make attractive or even viable investments. You know, I went back to look at the FTSE when I started back in the mid-80s, and only 26 companies in the UK uh, 100 index are still in the index. And a heck of a lot of them have disappeared, not just because of mergers, but many of them have just literally disappeared as unviable business models. And I think that is, a, you know, that sort of creative, destructive psych, uh, you know, cycle is something that we have to consider as active managers. And then when you're a universal owner, I think there is a consideration about how do you know when a, an engagement has failed? Because if you, if you think about it in these big systemic issues, if an engagement fails, then you're, you are really exposed to a major risk. And I think that's why some of the bigger passive funds have taken the innovative step of saying, if an engagement fails, we use that as an excuse, uh, as a reason to sell, because we're then knowingly exposed to a systemic risk that can't be compensated for. So, you know, we, we, this is one, I think, one of the challenges of achieving net zero. It's about, you know, a, a total economy picture, the role of government and its interplay with business and investment, but then how do you actually differentiate between uh, driving change and banging your head, if you like, against a brick wall? So let's let's kind of go into engagement in a little bit more detail you've sort of brought it up and you know you've been working in sustainable investing for many years now but but in, in investment management sort of generally for more than 30 years as a CIO and an equities portfolio manager so you know what if we look at what the future of funds management looks like and the role of stewardship in that can you envisage a time in active management for example where active management means active engagement with every single portfolio company? Is it, is it sort of going to get to a point where, you know, active management means engagement? In many ways, it should, you know. Is one going to be in a disengaged owner as an active manager of the stocks in which you invest? Uh, so I said, you know, how I see it is that engagement has always been, will continue to be, this really powerful feedback loop between you as the proxy owner of other people's capital that you deploy into investments and the executive management, and then a feedback loop from them to you. Uh, and that keep, helps keep you informed about their responsiveness to material issues, uh, their acknowledgement, their plans for action, or are they just are you just speaking to the hand? to use a sort of modern parlance. Um, and, and I think that notion of a feedback loop is really very powerful. It's, you know, it should be an embedded part of how you do, uh, a, a, if you like, an ESG assessment of a company prior to, in, to, to investing. And I, and I think that's the way, you know, to think about ESG and certainly how as an active manager that we would think about ESG and engagement. You do your full ESG assessment around the environmental, social and governance factors that are an issue for that company. 
you do that in, co in combination with the research analysts uh, so that they can embed into their valuation and assessment of business model those ESG risks and, and increasingly opportunities. But no company is perfect. And so there will always be opportunities to you know, that you can identify before investment as engagement opportunities. And in fact, you should start the engagement process before the purchase rather than a reactive process afterwards. Because that, that will then inform you if you start discussing these issues, whether it be around diversity matters, uh, circular economy and environmental issues or carbon policies. If you discuss that with management before initiating a purchase, it's a valuable feedback. It's valuable feedback on their attitude, their understanding, their acknowledgement of the issues. It informs you because you're supposed to inquire and discover, you know, their, what they're really doing and reporting is, there, is not always the same as what companies are doing. So that's an important part of it. So, you know, we find that we often engage with companies as part of the research process, and then we don't proceed. Um, when we do proceed and there are issues, then we have an opportunity to, you know, continue that dialogue with management having raised it at the beginning. I think the other way to think of engagement as well is not something just done by a separate stewardship team or stewardship company, but as an uh, something done by everybody. You know, it's the portfolio managers, the analysts, and uh, a stewardship or responsible investment team. And I find that works really very well. You know, when we have our analysts uh, alongside our RI uh, uh, people. It really changes the dynamic because the analysts and the PMs are the allocators of capital ultimately, and and that's really something that the you know I think the companies then take uh, take notice of far more, and I and that's why I would say every meeting with a company should be as an active manager an opportunity to engage on the material and salient issues because it's part of that that informing yourself and that feedback loop and that helps you for the good companies, lengthen the time horizon that you will own the company. Uh, for those where there are issues, then there, you can actually try and tackle and uh, uh, challenge that on those issues to lead change. It's how you can then work more in collaboration externally with industry bodies to help accelerate that change. Or it's a feedback loop that says These com this company just doesn't get it and it's a reason to sell. You know, and disallocation selling is is still an important part of the process because I, certainly from conversations as active managers that I have with corporates is that many in challenged areas where they have these big negative externalities are actually becoming very worried about access to capital, having shareholders uh, as they struggle to main, remain relevant in a changing world. Do you think that investors are holding their service providers to account enough on, on those issues? Are they engaging with you on your engagements, if you like? And, you know, should they be writing stewardship requirements into mandates or looking at other sort of non-financial objectives um, and holding holding managers to account on that type of thing? Or is, it, is that already happening? Are you working well together um, on those issues? I would say in the UK the it's gone not just exponential, but it's a super exponential, the demand over the last 12 months 
for engagement, stewardship, collaboration, detail on the voting uh, patterns, intentions, engagement plans. I, I've, it's been, you know, to use that word, transformative again. It's been an incredible journey in the UK in the last 12 months, not just pension funds. It's actually also you know, financial intermediaries. You know, we've never been busier in terms of the level of inquiry, the demands around engagement and, and voting, and that's great. I say we're all activists now. And you know, going back to that, that concept of it as a feedback loop, the extra feed, feedback loop now that is being brought in is that many of our clients want us to engage with companies and raise their voice. So our clients have now become much more activist, much more engaged, as you said, in engagement, uh, and that's been really quite, uh, quite, tra uh, quite transformative. Now, this is part. Uh, I think a lot of this is due to the Department of Work and Pensions in the UK now embedding ESG into the statement of investment principles, and then uh, pension funds having to have their implementation statement. Uh, we've got the UK Stewardship Code. Uh, we've got the Shareholder Rights Directive too. So there's a, a big body of work on the central importance of engagement uh, as about informing, changing, and directing the you know, the future direction of travel for the investment industry. So yeah, that, it's an area of you know I'd now say unprecedented demand. You you, you can't not really do engagement. Uh, if you're uh, if you're an investment manager, and and the dialogue is really I think is important. You know, we we are stewards of other people's money. You know, ultimately, as you know, there are, there's an individual at the end of the investment chain, uh, and this does bring a challenge. Because we all have values, but all our values might be different, and it's not to put a you know one's right and wrong, but you know increasingly we have to reflect on the needs of civil society. So in the UK, for example, defined contribution pension schemes are going to have to consult with members going forward about you know, their values and their interest in ESG. So that's going to be really important. You know, how do you surface uh, the interests and priorities of members without then compromising your ability to deliver the financial returns to meet their uh, financial needs in retirement, and it it will be a bit of a balance. I, so the one thing I might pick up with you a little bit on is that sort of notion of non-financial items. I always feel that's a bit of a misnomer, that it's just a question of time scale. So I always you know, talk about sustainability as being potent, this potential dynamic tension over the short term between the, you know, these three vectors of economic and financial returns, social consequences, and environmental impact. Now, over the short term, money can win out over the other two factors, but over the long term, they ultimately do come together, you know, because we need a well-functioning, prosperous society living in a healthy and vibrant world to support long-term economic returns that themselves then help derive financial returns that allow people to retire financially well off into this healthy world. So I, I think trying to frame them as non-financial can be a bit 
uh, is probably wrong. It, it, I always say that the difference between a sort of ESG, that ESG is an input, sustainable is the outcome that we want to achieve. And that's, you know, and it's an important element because it's about how you then frame environmental and social issues to ensure long-term financial resiliency uh, and, uh, and, and financial returns from, from your assets. I think they are intimately interlinked. So, you know, and also you, we still have challenges on fiduciary purpose. You know, we have a very different viewpoint in Europe to a viewpoint in, in the US. So if you start you know, talking about non-financial benefits, um, I think it sometimes can cloud, cloud the picture. If you actually frame it as systems thinking and long-term thinking, which most asset owners have the luxury of doing, then the two, you know, those three concepts of environment, people, and financial returns come together. Yeah, it's a good point, Andrew, and thanks for picking me up on that. I'll, I'll never use that again. Um, but but, but mm. it's an interesting conversation sort of generally, isn't it, too, around nomenclature and, you know, ESG and what is sustainable investing and, and what are the other types of investing. Um, so it's sort of, you know, it's an interesting interesting type of conversation sort of generally around naming um, and, and how the industry moves with that. You raise quite an important topic there about naming because there is a danger that if we focus too much on the label that we end up then playing to methodology over purpose. Uh, and I think if you're looking forward at the next five years, that's going to be really one of the most important things that the industry is going to have to tackle uh, and, and solve for. You know, we don't want to be just finding, uh, being be able to create portfolios that look good, but then underperform for the next decade. You know, we have to really understand you know, what the purpose is that you're trying to achieve, understand the context, and then actually how you actually deliver on that. And this is a complex subject, so it can't be trivialised down into a, into a, a predetermined label or definition. There are a lot of dy dynamism in this. The world is constantly changing, adapting, and, and that's one of the dangers that we need to be careful of in trying to find the definitive definition of these terms. Um, I think as an investor, what you should always do is say that if ESG didn't exist as a, as a, as a concept, if sustainability wasn't a word that we were using, would you carry on investing in the way that you do today under those labels? And I certainly would because I find them just as, as somebody who was a former hedge fund manager, as an active bottom-up stock picker, I just found them as really fantastic ways of looking to where the world's going and just great lens for not narrowing your universe, but actually expanding it as an active manager because it frees you from the dead hand of the index and forces you into, into look uh, at the world and where it's going. And I think our job as active managers in particular is to help navigate our clients through an uncertain and changing world. Yeah, and you've made this point a couple of times, which I really like, which is, you know, looking at relevant business models and strategies for a changing world. And I think we can all agree the world is changing extremely fast at the moment. And, you know, the economic and health pandemic that we've all been experiencing has really highlighted the social issues. Um, and there's many examples of how supply chains have been tested and 
companies are being held to account on issues related to workers and other stakeholders. And you've written about this in particular with reference to Amazon. And I'm, I'm interested in you giving us some more insight and talking through that particular case study and, and maybe also in the context of this idea of relevant business models for a changing world um, and maybe some tips for investors in the importance of these issues and how to assess them when looking at, at companies. So talk us through a little bit about what you've discovered around Amazon well, you know, I think it's let, let's look at the concept at a high, higher level. I mean, you know, Amazon is a, is a great example, uh, you know, of a company as a social enterprise. You know, all companies are de facto social enterprises. You know, my parent company, BMY Mellon, I think we employ as many people as live in my hometown in South Wales. And that's South Wales, not New South Wales. It's... Uh, and so we, with that comes an enormous responsibilities, you know, as go back to Rousseau and the, you know, the, the, the implied social contract with that. And, you know, we're looking to form, you know, a coalition around the future of work with a, on that concept where we want to bring together people from the labor movement in the US, we want to bring together companies, asset owners, academics, NGOs, who have a sh an interest in this concept of what the future of work looks like in a stakeholder model. You know, that's another word that we, we hear a, an awful lot about. And, and I think the reason we want to make it a coalition and bring lots of different voices together is we don't have the answer ourselves. We don't have this, you know, we have some ideas. We think it's going to be a really very important topic over the next decade, particularly at the moment where it does feel like we could, the world could be about to pivot on its social axis. It might, it might not, but we are at a very important point in time. And as we are left with very high levels of unemployment post the pandemic, so we're going to have to think about what the future work looks like, not just for those people in work, but also those people who are struggling to get back into into employment you know at the moment you know where i think we've all become gig workers you know i don't know how long you've been working uh from home amanda but i'm you know we're in six months and it looks like quite a few more months going beyond so the whole fabric of how i work has changed very rad radically and that's then going to be influenced by technology changing social norms and how that's going to reshape how we all think about, about businesses. But coming back to that sort of notion of you know, relevancy is that, you know, it does, through the lens of work, it is going to become, you know, really very important because we have had a balance over the last 40 years where the, 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 the emphasis has been placed much on financial returns, quite a lot at the, at the cost of, of the relative cost of labour. How long does that continue? Is that even good for economic activity? And you know, that, and that's why when you, you're engaging with big employers like Amazon, who have challenges and issues, that it's important to to raise them, but uh, and to try to, but also to understand the complexities and issues. So you know, it, I thought the COVID crisis was a great opportunity to understand companies' responsiveness to the notion of stakeholders and how they were uh, handling relationships with their workers, with their supply chains and the communities in which they operate, which is why 
even though there's a lot of just marketing in the business round tables, focus on the statement of corporate purpose from August last year, when you actually step back and look at it, it does actually hold, uh, they did provide a framework for holding them to account because they really do talk about treating workers with dignity and respect, providing training and, and important benefits, paying uh, living wages. So there is a framework for accountability there that I think asset owners and asset managers can then begin to use as a reference point for challenging companies, not just the ones that signed up to it, but uh, also as a general framework uh, for thinking about that. Now, you know, I think there are we're a big technology, there are other challenges. So it's not just the fact that they're big employers, but also their significant um, power in the industries in which they were operating. So the congressional report that came out a couple of days ago showed some of those potential uh, dangers with dominance in their industry and even sort of talk of them being broken up. Now, that's going to be a political decision. But again, it's one of those points in time where are we at a tipping point where attitudes begin to really shift and then change the nature of business models and relevancy. You know, so we had this in the 1920s, breaking up a standard oil um, because it became too dominant, and that was driven by a you know, change in political uh, culture. So, you know, for, for me, relevancy is something companies should always be talking about. You know, social norms are unstable uh, over time, which is good because we have seen such a uh, dramatic shift in uh, in attitudes, things to things like say gay marriage, which you know maybe forty years ago, lots of uh, significant proportion of society would have been uh, against. Whereas today, just it, it's a very small proportion that are against, and it's just generally accepted as the norm. You know, so and, and, and that's just a small example, but it's part of how society generally works. Uh, it's not stable. And companies that just anchor to the past and have, or have the arrogance of thinking that they're always going to be relevant are in danger of just being marooned. So you can create a, uh, a moat, if you like, but what if the tide goes out or the river changes its course and your moat becomes dry and you're, you're isolated in, you know, in, in a desert of no activity? And that's what can happen. If you just look at moats and you don't think of the world in terms of an adaptation, then that's why it's very easy for companies over the course of a decade to suddenly become irrelevant. Go back to my example of the FTSE uh, in, in the mid-1980s compared to today. It's a very different construct, not just in terms of the names, but the type of companies, the business activities that reflect modern society and, you know, there's, there's an innate entropy uh, in business models. No business model is designed to last forever because things, you know, um, succumb to changing norms and just, you know, you know fall in on themselves. So, so for me, that re being relevant in a changing world is such a powerful concept that it is a great way of companies trying to understand how they can adapt to change goes back to you know Charles Darwin he never said the survival of the fittest he said the survival of the most adaptive and you know for you know, the, you know we've had a lot of focus pre-covid on uh, efficiency 
financial efficiency through leverage, you know, and the type of you know, financial engineering of business models. Well, that didn't prove to be always that relevant, uh, resilient when we went into the down, downturn. And so it's actually that notion of adaptation is more important than fitness. So efficiency is not the same as that ability to be adaptive to changing norms. It's almost like relevancy is the ultimate stranded asset, isn't it? And sort of, you know, it's not necessarily about the the industry, it's about your adaptation and, and, and ability to move with the times. I like that, Andrew. Yes, well, you know, I think, you know, that notion of in sustainable, in sustainable approaches, you have to take account of uh, negative externalities because they represent a, a, a risk, a potential risk that the, what is today perceived as a negative externality becomes internalized into business models. So, you know, five years ago, people would say, well, we accept climate change and you know, it's driven by man, uh, it's man-made, it, it represents a risk uh, uh, out there, but it's not being internalised into business models. Com governments don't seem to care. You know, look at the oil majors, their dividends are rock solid, you know, they get good returns on capital. But here we are five years later and that climate change, as we all sort of knew, has now become very much internalised into business models, with even BP talking about uh, have we reached peak oil in two out of their three forward-looking scenarios. Uh, and, 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 and that's a really important concept. You know, negative externalities represent a potential risk, and the problem is you don't know when that's going to manifest itself in business models. So dynamic tension is an inevitable part of trying to assess sustainability. I always actually smile because one CEO once said to me, well, the first rule of sustainability is to survive. And I initially thought that was a very trite comment, but it was actually quite a serious comment because businesses live in this competitive world, a uh, very adaptive world, and it, you, know, you do need to survive. And that's why coming back to why financial returns have to be seen alongside environmental and social. Because if you want to achieve a positive environmental and social impact, you still do need to, be to, uh, to make a financial return. So the viability of business models and as well as environmental and social consequences have to be seen in that sort of, uh, in that, as part of the whole and a dynamic tension between them. Um, and over the long term, you have you know, if you want to survive, you have to have all three. I've similarly heard it sustainably described as the ability to exist in the future, which is kind of what you're saying. Andrew, we're out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you as always and great to catch up with you. Thank you very much for your time and your insights and um, please stay well and safe. And you too. Lovely to be talking to you again, Amanda. All the best. Thank you.